I want to do is I want to walk you through this passage on the glory uh, in chapter 3, verse 7 through 18. And this also has some of the kind of challenges in, ter- in terms of interpretation, like the passage that we just dealt with. But again, I, this has become maybe my favorite passage in the whole book. Um, and it, it, it has such implications for how we understand the Christian life today and the nature of it. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go to this. Uh, we, we're we're going to at least close out by taking a few minutes of looking at the thorn passage uh, at the end to kind of end up there. But uh, I'm going to switch on you just a little bit. Um, but I think, I think this will be a, a good thing to do. And again, we'll have to kind of move through the passage uh, somewhat quickly because uh, there's, a, there's a lot you know, a lot to cover. But um, let's take a look at this passage in chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. My translation reads, Now, if the ministry of death, engraved in letters on stones, was attended by glory, with the result that the sons of Israel were not able to continue looking at the face of Moses because the glory of his face was made inoperative. How could the ministry of the Spirit not be attended by glory to a greater degree? For if in the ministry characterized by condemnation there was glory, to a much greater degree the ministry characterized by righteousness overflows with glory. For really, in this situation, what was having been glorified, he's talking about the face of Moses there, now has no glory at all because of the glory that outshines it. For if that which was being made inoperative was through glory, he's talking about Moses' face being closed off by the veil. If it was through glory, to a much greater extent, the ministry that remains is attended by glory. Therefore, since we have this kind of hope, we conduct our ministry with a great deal of openness. In contradistinction to Moses, he kept putting a veil over his face with the result that the children of Israel were not able to keep looking attentively unto the completion of what was being made inoperative. Now, I know your translation doesn't read like that. It's a very difficult, very difficult verse to translate. Verse 14, Rather, their minds were hardened... For until this very day, when the Old Covenant is read, that same veil remains unmoved because uh, it can only be made inoperative by Christ. Indeed, right up to the present time, when Moses is read, a veil drapes their hearts. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And what he's doing there is he's talking about the Lord in the Old Testament text. In that passage in Exodus 34, the Lord there is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All of us in the New Covenant with unveiled faces observing the Lord's glory as in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. Uh, Christian minister Richard Baxter um, once said this, It is no easy matter to speak so plain that the ignorant may understand us, so seriously that the deadest hearts may feel us, and so convincingly that contradictory cavaliers may be silenced. He's just saying that communicating spiritual truths in the world as Christian ministers is not easy. It's not easy. So um, what Paul is dealing with in this passage is he's dealing with how we carry out various aspects of ministry, how we carry out various aspects of ministry. So we have this passage. It's a rather extensive passage. And what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting Two visions of ministry, contrasting two visions 
of ministry. I think it's I think it's at least possible that what lies in the backdrop of the passage is that the false teachers in Corinth were talking a lot about glory uh, in the cultural sense, wanting to kind of be glorious in terms of being fantastic speakers and you know, really presenting this, this wonderful image of people who have it all together and they're great leaders and that kind of thing. And I think that Paul is actually contradicting that cultural vision of glory by saying that there is a Christian version of glory, a biblical view of glory, that is more important and it's not relegated to leaders. It's for everybody who's part of the New Covenant. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? So he's, he's picking up on the image of glory from this Old Testament text. I mean, he's very oriented to Exodus 34 here. He's picking up on the image of glory in this text in order to contradict the Corinthian cultural vision of glory, I think. Now, he's, that's not very overt. In the, it's not overt in the passage. But it makes sense in this broader section that he's dealing with where it's very clear he's interested in authentic ministry over against the shysters who are there in in Corinth. Does that make some sense? All right. So if they're coming and they're talking about glory, we have to understand that in that culture, um, glory was a premium. You, You tried to move up in the culture to gain glory for yourself. And the worst thing that could happen to you was to be shamed. So you tried to get glory and honor for yourself. Uh, if you think about it in terms of our cultural context, we have a lot in our cultural context where we celebrate the shining face of the brilliant leader, right? And I, that, that was very much a part of Corinthian culture. Um, and, and it... Boy, it is, it is difficult if you have any kind of public ministry uh, with, with uh, promoting yourself, building your platform. All of these ideas are very, very big in our ministry culture. And I think it, I think it is something that is very dangerous spiritually, very dangerous spiritually. We're getting ready to, to do another uh, video curriculum. Uh, it's kind of follow-up on Read the Bible for Life. I think I mentioned that this morning. And, uh, and I am, I am already, this won't come out until next summer, and I'm already really processing and thinking through spiritually how to go into another season of ministry where it's more visible and we're trying to promote and doing all this kind of stuff because it can be toxic, toxic to your soul. It can. Because you get, get in the, there's a fine line between wanting to promote ministry for the sake of getting the ministry out there and promoting yourself. And so I think what Paul's dealing with is, is these toxic ministers who are peddling the Word of God, he says in uh, 3, 16, 17. Peddling the Word of God. They're, they're out there selling something. It's a fine line between that kind of ministry and an authentic ministry, which is very visible and yet is doing things for the right reason. So he's picking up imagery here from Exodus 34. And Moses going up on the mountain and coming down from the mountain, having been in the presence of God, and he has a glowing face. And that's what he's picking up, that imagery from Exodus 34. All right? So he's contrasting two ministries. He's basically letting Moses sit in for old covenant kind of ministry. And he's going to talk about the contrast between that and new covenant ministry ministry under the gospel and what Christ has has brought about and how it's a different kind of glory involved when you have that kind of glory even from the old covenant now let me make clear he's not tearing Paul he's not tearing Moses down he's building on Moses to say something important about new covenant he's not saying Moses is bad and new covenant is good he's saying Moses was good but extremely limited in the effect of the glory in his ministry. And it's a very different situation. If you have authentic New Covenant ministry, it's a very different situation. So let's take a look at it. So you've got a contrast between these two ministries. Notice that in the text, in the passage that you have here, you have a contrast between the ministry of the letter 
and the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit, and then the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of righteousness. So in the left-hand column, you have an old covenant ministry. In the right-hand column, you have the new covenant ministry. And one of the main points that he wants to make in contrasting these two is uh, they have a very different degree of glory, very different degree of glory. So when he talks about um, the glory, he, he's drawing on a much bigger theological stream of thought here uh, that has to do with glory in the Bible as a whole. And it's pretty complex. So let me just real quickly uh, give you an overview of how glory is used in the biblical text. And you might not want to try to write all of this down, but just to give it to you, Uh, very briefly to show you how diverse the idea of glory can be, and then we'll see where he zeroes in on it here. But glory is used as a designation for God. God can be referred to as the glory. Glory sometimes refers to internal characteristics, an attribute or a summary of the attributes of God. Glory in the Bible can be used as God's visible and active presence. That's Think about the glory coming down on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It manifested the presence of God. And I think that's, that's one of the dominant uses uh, in, the, in the Bible, that glory is showing, hey, folks, God has shown up. God is here, that idea of glory. Uh, number four, glory as the display of God's attributes, perfections, or person. So um, glory um, shining, not so much something you see visibly, but shining in the goodness of God. His, his attributes, his perfections, that kind of thing. Uh, and then go- glory as the ultimate goal of this display of God's attributes. In other words, God's fame grows, his glory in that sense grows as his goodness becomes known. Uh, number six, sometimes glory connotes heaven or the heavenly realm. So we speak of going to glory. We've, we've even used that in southern culture. He's gone home to glory, that kind of idea kind of an eschatological idea. And then seven, giving glory to God may also refer to appropriate response to God in the form of worship, exaltation, or exaltation. So, you know, it's us giving glory to God. Well, God doesn't need glory from us in, in one sense, but, but in, biblically you can have that language that we are glorifying God in the sense of acknowledging how glorious He is. That's kind of the idea. All right, so you have this, uh, this idea of glory in the Bible that is very, very diverse. Um, but what Moses uh, had was a result. The, the glory on Moses' face was a direct result of him being in the presence of God, right? So he goes up on the mountain. You remember the story, uh, Exodus 32, you have the golden calf incident. Moses comes down off the mountain, having gotten the law. He breaks the law. Exodus 33, God says, okay, you guys going up to the promised land. I'm sending my angel before your face. I'm not going with you. I'm staying here in the desert. Remember that? I mean, that's what God says. Because if I go up among you, I will destroy you on the way because you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses goes to God and says, look, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. I'm staying here because I want to be where you are. God, show me your ways that I might know you. Because how can we be distinct from all the people on the earth? Is it not by your going with us? Boy, powerful thoughts there, right? So he, he cries out to God and God says, okay, because you've responded this way, Moses, I'll go with you. So God says, I'm, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. I want to, I want to see you, God. And that's where he goes up on the mountain. He, uh, he meets in the presence of God. God reveals himself to him. And he comes down. His face is shining. And all the people go, great, this is wonderful. Can we participate in that? Is that how they responded? No. What did they do? They said, Cover that up. You know, this, they, they were terrified by the thing, by, by the manifestation of God's presence. Uh, so what we have in the passage is uh, 
biblically, you have these, these key ideas of glory possessed, glory purpose, glory displayed, glory ascribed, glory received, and then glory shared. So what we're seeing in this passage is an emphasis on the idea of glory shared, where Moses' face is shining because God has manifested his presence on the face of Moses. And then Paul is going to contrast that with the manifestation of God's glory in the lives of New Covenant ministers and people. Okay? Everybody, everybody with me? Okay. All right. Hang in there. Um, let's, take a, let's take a look at how this kind of develops. Now, you know the passage. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details here because of our time, but you know the passage, Exodus 34 29 says that Moses came down off the mountain, that his face was charged with glory. That's the translation from the Septuagint, the Greek passage that Paul would have been looking at. Uh, It was charged with glory while he was speaking to God. And he's going to go into looking at all the differences between the lesser glory of Moses and the greater glory found in the new covenant very briefly he says moses in moses ministry his ministry had glory but the new covenant ministry has glory to a greater degree moses face was made i'm translating this inoperative and i'm going to tell you why in just a second his face was snuffed out it was made inoperative he had glory in his ministry that ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant overflows with glory. The thing having been glorified in Moses' case now doesn't have glory because the glory in the new covenant so outshines it. Think about a, a light that is, uh, if I had a little uh, pin light or whatever, and we were in an absolutely dark room. I mean, no windows, everything was was dark. And I had that little pin light and I turned that, pin light on it would it would seem very bright wouldn't it i mean it would suddenly bring light to the room there you go uh it would bring light to the room it would seem like okay this is giving us light but if suddenly we switched on floodlights in that room coming from four directions you wouldn't be able to even see the light in the pin light because so much more glory if you will was present now that it made the glory of the pin light not even noticeable. It doesn't have glory at all in that case, right? Because it's so outshone by the glory, the greater glory. I think part of what Paul is talking about here is that with Moses, with Moses, you had one person's face that was manifesting God's glory. One person. And in that case, his face kept getting snuffed out because the people didn't want to see the glory of God. It scared them. So he kept putting a veil over his face, snuffing out the glory on his face, making it inoperative in that sense. It's like turning the switch off, so to speak. And he would go in and meet with God and take the veil off and then come back out and put it back on when he was dealing with the people. Everybody with me? So in the Old Covenant ministry, you had a little bit of glory, And the people experience just a very little bit of glory. But in New Covenant ministry, you have a whole lot more glory. Why? Well, if you look down at the end of the passage, all of us in the New Covenant shine with the glory of God. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so what Paul's getting at, where he's heading with this is, When you look at the New Covenant where thousands and now millions of people all over the world shine with the presence of God in their lives, it so outshines what Moses experienced the presence of God. There's no comparison. Yes? Yeah, no, I I would disagree with that. I would disagree. Let me tell you why. I understand. I understand. Let let uh, Let me see if I can answer your question in this way. You do, he talks about the ministry of the Spirit as New Covenant ministry. Now, somebody tell me, from what we know of New Covenant, why would he describe 
new covenant ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. Think of broader biblical theology and text here. What would be the reason why he would describe it that way? Other passages, other... Okay, yeah, okay, that's a good, that's a good example. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. What are the phenomena that surround the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost? Right. But you also have what look like flames of fire on people's heads. What is that? That is a manifestation of the glory of God. The tabernacle that was filled with glory when God descended on it now is embodied in the lives of God's people. We're now the temple of the living God. And the presence, the Holy Spirit presence of the living God has come in glory to reside in believers. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, I can, I think. I'll give it a try anyway. It's almost 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so my brain doesn't work well in the middle of the afternoon, but I'll try. Um, in verse 17, where he says... For the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What he's doing is he's looking at the references to Lord in the Old Testament text, in Exodus 34. And he's saying that when Moses went up on the mountain and met with God in his glory, who he was meeting with was the Holy Spirit. That's who he's meeting with. Now now, Now just think about it. Well, it does. But now, but, now, but now remember, when you have references to Yahweh, to Adonai in the, Old, in the Old Testament, it's just referring to God. Not referring necessarily to God the Father. In fact, just as an example, Isaiah 45, Lord there seems to be referring in prophecy to the Son. Paul picks up Isaiah 45 in the reference to every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess, and applies them to Jesus in Philippians 2. Also in the Old Testament, there is a discrete word for spirit, ruach. You do. You do have the word. That's right. But you have him interpreting in light of later revelation. Here's the way I think Paul would think about it. Okay, if God the Father is seated in heaven... God the Son has not yet come to earth when Exodus 34 is going on. Then how is God meeting with Moses on the mountain? Well, he's meeting by the Holy Spirit, by his Spirit coming and meeting with him there. And I think he does that in part by uh, understanding the developing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is reading from a New Testament understanding of the Godhead back into the passage and understanding yeah, it is. It's, it's very Trinitarian, and it's very, and it's very Jewish. Okay, we're not quite to the thorn yet, so hang on with the thorn. We've got to get to one good stuff thing and before we get to the thorn, all right? So uh, we're, we're going to get there, brother. Hang on just a second. So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. What he is saying is that the ministry of... The old covenant was inadequate because it was limited. The effect, the dynamic of the presence of God in a person's life was limited to Moses. And the difference with new covenant ministry is that we minister. And I'll I'll kind of just give a, a summary here and then get to two final things about this that I just think are pretty awesome. So in terms of ministry, he says the way we minister is we minister with openness. So we don't put a veil over our face. We minister with openness. We minister the gospel so that the Spirit of God works through us in proclaiming the gospel. There's an openness there. And that grows out of what? That grows out of our face-to-face interaction with the living God. So part of authentic ministry is that I need to be a person who is walking with God, knows the living God face to face, and His glory, His presence is being manifested in my life. 
Now, one other thing about the, the uh, term there that I translated as uh, made inoperative or snuffing out. And this, I'm going to make this point, and then we are gonna, we're going to kind of move on here in just a second. The word is katargeo. It's a, it's a Greek word that in the ancient world never means to fade. Your, some of your translations say that the glory of Moses, the glory of his face was fading. And I've, we could go into the slides, but just listen. I'm going to try to summarize a couple of things here because of our time. The word never in the ancient world means to fade. It doesn't mean to fade. It means something that is shut off, something that's made inoperative, something that is made ineffective. And people have tried to come up with all kinds of kind of nifty theological understandings of what's going on here. I think it's very straightforward. As uh, Paul was reading Exodus 34 in this passage where the veils put over Moses' face over and over again, he's just saying that that the glory on Moses' face was snuffed out by the veil. Very simple. It just was snuffed out. But because we minister with open faces, without veiled faces, in other words, we have open ministries. Think about Paul contrasting himself with the false teachers. Because we have this kind of open ministries, we share the gospel in a way that Christ takes that veil that is lying over the hearts of lost people, and he nullifies that veil. When he gets to 13, that's, that's what he's doing. The effect, what is the effect of a new covenant ministry where you have an unveiled face, you're filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is ministering to people, addressing people whose hearts are covered over, they can't hear and understand the gospel. What happens? What happens is the living God, through the Spirit, comes and rips the veil away from their heart. The same word is used, katargeo. He nullifies the veil that's on their heart. He makes that veil over their heart ineffective so that they can understand and hear the gospel and respond to it. Isn't that awesome? Because all through the passage, the word is used of the veil making Moses' face inoperative. He said, New Covenant ministry, the veil over the hearts of people is made inoperative. It's, it's no longer effective in keeping the gospel out and they can hear and respond to the gospel. And notice how he ends the passage in verse 17 and 18. He says, for we with unveiled faces, all of us, glory's not just for the leaders. We all, all of us as believers with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed. So we go and we meet with the Lord in his glory and that affects us and transforms us in a way that then we reflect God's glory in the world. Now let me tell you what I think it's meaning, and then we'll, then we'll move on. Obviously, when we're walking around day, I don't see all of your faces kind of having this glow come off like Moses. It's not a physical manifestation in that sense. But the glory of God is tied in Exodus 34. You go back and read the early part of Exodus 34, where God gives a, a description of his character. The Lord, the Lord, he is good he has chesed. He has this loving kindness. Uh, it's, it's all about God's character and the manifestation of His goodness and His righteousness. That's the essence of God's glory. And so I think what this passage means is as you and I know the living God and we meet with Him face to face and we are being transformed. How are we being transformed? In the character of God by the goodness and the righteousness and the kindness of God. So that then we go and manifest those dynamics in the world and share the gospel in a way that people can then see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and have that veil ripped away from their hearts as they believe the gospel. Okay, now that's way too fast of, a, of an explanation there. But does that, does that make some sense? Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying the reason why New Covenant ministry is so much better than, than the old covenant kind of glory that was relegated to one leader is because it's a glory that permeates all of, all of the body of Christ. All new covenant believers are transformed by being able to know the presence of God. It's not about one person. Listen, 
Christian ministry is not about one person going up on the mountain and coming down and getting the message for everybody else. It's about all of us being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. And then us going out and being transformation agents in the world because we are manifesting the glory of God in the world. We're manifesting the goodness, the kindness of God in the world. Okay, let me see if you have one question, one or two questions about that, and then we are going to go to the thorn and look very briefly at what Paul says about the thorn and just kind of end with a, with a thought on what's going there on there in that passage. Does anybody have a question about this passage that I can clarify? Yes, sir. Uh, actually, it, it is thinking forward to the ministry of reconciliation because that's in chapter 5. But, but yes, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, it's how we get back with God through the ministry of the Spirit. Yeah. All right, let's, let's move then and look at, um, at this final, final part of the book. Let me see if I can kind of get us moved ahead here to that very last bit and give you a sense of, the, um, of the, the thing that is going on here beginning in chapter 11 and uh, then how he moves from the fool's speech in chapter 11 and then into our part on the thorn in uh, chapter 12. So let's, uh, let me kind of give you the big picture here and then we will actually look at um, specifically this passage on the thorn itself. Um, all right, let me, let me just kind of walk you through this. Now, uh, the fool speech is really in two parts. So the first part of the fool speech the reason why we call this the fool speech is because Paul has been resisting through the whole book, playing by his opponent's rules, playing their game of public one-upmanship, okay? So he's been, he's been resisting that through the whole book. He says, look, I'm not going to stand up and go toe-to-toe with these guys in a speaking competition because that's not what ministry is all about. And he finally gets to this place in the book and he says, okay, all right, I'll boast if you want me to do that. Because what he's referring to there is where you would stand up in public and you would talk about all the great things you could do and your abilities and all this kind of stuff. And he says, okay, I'll do that. Um, But what he actually ends up doing is not boasting. He actually ends up talking about all the ways that he's suffered all the ways that he is weak. He focuses on his weaknesses. And that's the big part, a big point of what's going on in the fool's speech. So he starts with questions of identity in verses 22 and 23 um, and, and talks about being a Hebrew and Israelite, all, all of this kind of thing, which would be normal. You start with kind of ethnic identity. That would have been a normal way to start to boast. But then he immediately turns to general characteristics of his trials. You know, just, just generally uh, what life is like if you're Paul. If you're in Paul's shoes as a minister, here are all the kind of difficult things that happen to you. He then goes to uh, specific trials in 11, 24, and 25. And you can kind of read along. You can follow the list there uh, in your Bible. And he talks about real specific kinds of difficulties. So in the big picture of the list, he talks about, you know, running into robbers and not being able to sleep and all these kind of very negative things. I mean, really difficult things in life, not normally things you would brag on. You don't brag about getting beaten up and, and you know, hurt in mob action and all of these kind of things. But that's what Paul talks about here. He then talks about uh, various kinds of dangers and they run the gamut in the country, in the city, uh, false brothers, you know, all these kind of things uh, are dangers. And then he goes back to some more general characterization of his trials in 11, uh, 27. And then anxiety about the churches. So he says, I, I have all of these really difficult things going on in my life. These all would constitute weaknesses. 
And on top of all that, I have anxiety about the churches. Now, think about the significance of him ending this part of the list with that. Because he's, he's confronting the church about what a problem they are. And he's saying, look, and on top of all of this stuff, you guys are giving me a headache. Right? You're just causing my life to be difficult. Uh, I remember in the church that we planted, um, we had a really kind of rough moment about seven years in. And we had hired a, a guy to come and, and it just it, it was not working out well. His ministry was not fitting kind of the philosophy, you know, the, of the church and some of our theological convictions and things like that. And, and he came to a point, we didn't ask him to leave. He came to, we, we allowed God to just work with him and deal with him. And he, but he came to a point and said, you know, this is, this is just not a fit. And I think I need to go to, you know, a very traditional church where I'm the, kind of the CEO and calling the shots. And, and we said, God bless you. You know, that's, that's great. I didn't think that it was really about those issues, and it turned out not to be. But he, you know, he's a good brother, sincere. And so we all, all of the, uh, the, the leaders of the church stood up front with him to all say, uh, hey, you know, we're not going to go into the reasons. There were a lot of problems kind of behind the scenes with his administration and stuff like that. But we were all standing up front, all unified as the leaders of the church with our arms around each other and said, um, uh, folks, uh, we, uh, Greg said, you know, I've come to a conviction that I, I, need to, I need to move on and, you know, we're all unified in this and so we were just praying that it would be a good unifying moment. He would be able to go on. We'd be able to continue in our ministry. And one of the members of the congregation stood up and said, Well, I just feel like I've been socked in the stomach. And I thought, Oh, thank you so much for this uh, gracious moment, the way you've handled this. you know." And I thought about that passage in Hebrews 13 where, where the author of Hebrews says, Do not relate to your leaders in a way that causes them to groan. And so what Paul's saying to the Corinthians at this point is, look, folks, what I'm dealing with with you just is a part of this difficulty list that I've just given you. So he lines out all of these weaknesses. And then in the second part of the speech, he uh, kind of makes a transition, talks about his escape from Damascus. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he talks about being caught up into paradise. And the reason why he's doing this is not to brag. It's to point out what God did to keep him humble coming out of that experience. So he raises the uh, idea of being snatched up to paradise to say, even though I've had that kind of experience, I want to keep the focus here on my weakness. And that's what he says in verses 5 and 6. And this brings up his thorn in the flesh in 12, 7 through 9. He says, the reason why I wanted to raise this uh, experience that I had is because what God did is God showed me that what's more important than that kind of experience is the fact that I understand my weakness. Look at verses 7 through 9 of the passage. And due to the extraordinary character of the revelations, therefore, so that I might not become consumed with self-importance, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, in order that it might beat me so that I might not become consumed with self-importance. says it twice. I pleaded with the Lord three times about this so that it might be kept away from me, but he answered me, my grace is entirely sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might take up residence on me. Now, I think, I mean, there are different ideas about what Paul's thorn really was. And let me just, you can read the commentary and, and kind of look uh, a little bit further at the argument there. But I think what he was talking about was not, I don't think it was a physical illness. I think that what Paul is, um, is talking about, again, is persecution. 
because he comes to the end, if you, if you keep reading, uh, verse 10 kind of rounds off this section, he then alludes back to the trial list that he's just given. And he's using language there. Um, look, at, look at verse 10. For this reason I'm delighted in weaknesses, in indignities, in crises, in persecutions, in troubles for Christ's sake. So that's a summary of all of what he's just been talking about. So I think that what he's talking about here is persecution. That he's saying that life has been very, very difficult. And it's been difficult in a way that that I think Paul was getting tired. I think he was getting tired of being beat up all the time in the cause of Christ, of life being so difficult. And he, he, in essence, was saying, Lord, can't we retire, you know, from this phase of our ministry? He asked the Lord to remove it from him. If, if I'm right, if he is talking about persecution here. And God said, no, because this is how my power is manifested. It's how my work and my power is perfected. It's through your weakness. Your weakness is the vehicle through which I manifest my glory. The difficulties that you're facing in ministry. Uh, That position, by the way, was held by Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, who's probably my favorite church father because he was such a great preacher. Um, But I think what what Paul is, in essence, dealing with in terms of his thorn in the flesh, is that he, he got to a point where all of these manifestations of weaknesses that he's been talking about, he was just ready for those to be done and to move on to something better. And, and let me just, just kind of bring this around to a, a final thought here for us. I don't have to tell you that all of us live in ministry with limitations. We live with irritations. We live with things that we feel are fighting against our usefulness and our success in the ministry. There are, there are things uh, about myself that I just wish were not the case. I wish I'd done better with certain things in life. I mean, there are all kinds of things that I can become focused on. Uh, there are difficulties that I've faced in ministry at times that I just I, I don't like. But, you know, looking back on the hardest times of life in ministry, I, I can honestly say, and I have to be honest about the fact, that they were also the most productive times in terms of spiritually and also in ministry. God uses our limitations and our weaknesses and the challenges as much as He uses our abilities. And I'm not downplaying the importance of spiritual gifts and preparation. Listen, I believe that we should do everything we can to be prepared and skilled and hone our skills. And Paul was amazingly skilled and trained. But I think what he is saying is at the end of the day, we live in a context in which things are difficult and and endurance is demanded and it's actually in an endurance through the difficulties of life that God, God manifests as the strength of the gospel. It's a great story about John Stott, that uh, great British evangelical uh, pastor. And Stott, uh, 1958, Stott was uh, going to do a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. He received word of his father's death the day before the final meeting. And at the same time, he was beginning to lose his voice. And he described the final day of the outreach like this. This is what he writes. It was already late afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel that I could back away at that time. I went to the great hall and I asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience. 
When time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow way from Matthew 7. I had to get within half an inch of the microphone and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in a monotone. And then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response. Larger than any other meeting during the mission as students came flocking forward. Reflecting on the impact of that experience, Stott notes, I've been back to Australia about ten times since 1958, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? And he said, I jolly well do. Well, they said, I was converted that night. He concludes, the Holy Spirit takes our human words spoken in great weakness and frailty and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and believe. And what I want to say to us today as a word of encouragement to myself and to all of us here is work hard. Grow in your abilities. Hone your skills. Be responsible. Study to show yourself approved. But then, take joy in the fact that we are limited, weak, struggling people. Because it actually is in the context of our weaknesses that the Lord often can show himself to be strong in the one who is really bringing about spiritual fruit. My prayer uh, for you today and for me is that as we've uh, just had a taste of 2 Corinthians, we've kind of been drawn into the amazing book that this is, just the countercultural thinking, very theologically saturated thinking that Paul exhibits here. And my prayer is that you will be able to go and continue to grow and learn about this book and teach it to others in a way that that will be powerful in the lives of struggling people in the world.